Welcome to the Kaleo Life Podcast. You can find more resources for gospel living and information about us by going to our website, kaleo.community. Enjoy today's sermon. Let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, um, I ask you for your grace to be poured out upon me, um, not only to get me through preaching, but for all of us to be edified because at the end of the day, no one here needs to hear from me. They need to hear from you. And we need to be taught by you um, things concerning righteousness and concerning life and faith um, so that in greater measure, we may have faith in Jesus, who is our savior, or for perhaps some faith in him in general. So I pray that your presence here um, would begin to make, make thin the veil between heaven and earth and for your presence to feel thick amongst us. Because we know that you are omnipresent, that you are at all, in all places at all times. So Lord, give us knowledge of your presence and your grace amongst us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so um, God is, was working on preparing me for this sermon uh, about a week before I knew I was going to be giving the sermon. Um, it is uh, often my habit for whenever I'm asked to speak. Like I said, it's my only, my second sermon ever. So usually I'm asked to give like a short little devotional thought. And uh, I like to speak from those, at least out of what the Lord is teaching me. But the Lord happened to be teaching me something much bigger in my own life. Um, a lack of contentment in Jesus. Uh, and it crept in in very insidious ways in my own life in ways that I was not expecting. Um, and where the Lord really began to put his finger on this in my life was uh, a couple weeks back at my grandparents' church. Uh, we went with them to um, uh, the Bible study portion that was right before the main service. And the guy who was speaking there was speaking on contentment. And he had a little quiz for us to do. Uh, 25 questions, which I wish I kind of had to maybe have us do because I thought I was going to do really good on this and I scored a lot lower than I thought I was going to. Um, basically, uh, you were supposed to answer zero out of four and you wanted a higher score on it. And at the end of it all, it broke down into five different categories. One of them was uh, uh, you are like perfectly content. You are the model of contentedness. And next to it had a little asterisk that basically said, you're probably a liar and need to have a better self-evaluation. <laughs> um, then the next bracket was realistic contentment. Like you are realistically very content in life. And of course you have some struggles with wants every now and then who doesn't. Um, the third category was uh, you struggle with contentment more than the average person. And, um, and you occasionally have a, a serious struggle with covetousness. Then the category that I fell into, which was um, you are covetousness, but haven't gone into the full on into the last category, which is absolute idolatry. And that woke me up to some things because the questions that I scored really bad on were not the ones like, oh, I want this computer or I want this thing in general. It was I am not happy when things don't go my way or when things don't work out the way that I think they should or the way that I plan to. It was questions along those themes. And that's why I meant by covetous, or covetousness, yes, 
or discontentment had crept up in a very insidious way in my life. And so it forced me to do a bit of introspection on myself. And it was very generous of God and also of Ben that I had a assigned work day to go and have a day of solitude out at the beach uh, that following Thursday. And uh, uh, I knew that this was upcoming. I was like, all right, well, uh, I, I should be praying and doing some Bible study around this. And, but uh, before I had a chance to get out to the beach, Tuesday had to happen. And Tuesday, I have a, a morning meeting with Ben. And he said, how do you feel about preaching in a couple of weeks? Well, I knew what I was going to be speaking on because I already was feeling convicted on something. So that was easy enough. But now I had an agenda for my day of solitude, my day of rest, was to not only just do a Bible study and talk to God about my contentedness, I now had to prep a sermon. And uh, so that got me into the mode of doing and accomplishing things and um, being satisfied when my accomplishments are done. But I had to then get ready to, uh, to, to preach. And so on Thursday morning, as I'm getting ready to go out to the beach, I start thinking, oh man, there's these projects at the church that I've wanted to do that I'm not going to get done today. There's these projects down in my wood shop that, you know, if I'm not going to be at the church, I could be working on these wood projects or at least cleaning up my shop and, and getting things organized. And I've wanted to build this French cleat system and all this sort of thing. And the Lord really began to work on me saying, no, this is how discontentment has rooted itself in your life. And so almost by gritting my teeth, I had to get, get everything ready and into the car and get out to the beach. And the whole way there, I'm thinking about, ah, there's these things, there's these things, there's these things. And I finally get out to the beach. And I don't know if any of you have been out to Damon Point in Ocean Shores. But it is deceptively long. Um, you can see the, the end of it and they're like, oh, that's not very far away. And you start walking and then you're walking and you're still walking and, and walking some more. And the whole time I'm walking, I'm thinking, well, it'd be sure great to find now that I'm here and find a spot and post up and do my Bible study and do my sermon prep. And uh, I find a, a, a good spot to set up a little beach shelter and I have a good time setting that up and uh, and getting more and more satisfied with my, my area and everything. And I begin to, uh, I, I, I create my shady spot and I finally begin to do my Bible study. And uh, I was looking, I knew I had to preach on a psalm. I didn't know which psalm it was going to be. And I was just reading through a bunch of different psalms and none of them were really speaking to me. And I remember that Ben had said that, well, Psalm 34 is on the list. Uh, uh, on the schedule, but you don't have to do that one. Pick, you can pick whichever psalm you want. So I was like, well, I haven't read that one yet. Might as well read Psalm 34. And I saw all the way through it, the language of contentedness. We have a God who doesn't make mistakes and has a, a funny way of proving that. <laughs> um, especially through those who are the spiritual authorities in our life. So that's a quick little aside. Listen to your elders. God is often using them to speak to you on things that you're not even realizing that he needed to say to you. <laughs> I didn't know, I didn't realize Psalm 34 out by his offhanded comment was going to prove so fruitful in my own life. So quick aside, um, I started reading it and I'll, I'll read it for you now. 
I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger. But those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all of their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of all of them. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. So right from the get-go, there's uh, some, some very nuanced observations that I think are worth making. Verses 1 through 10, at least in general, they, they kind of talks about what are the marks of a contented life? When, when contentment marks and defines your life, what does it look like? And before we even dive into that, we should define what contentment is. Without a doubt, it is finding your ultimate satisfaction in God alone. Discontentment, covetousness, those things are the mark of when you are satisfied something else, some, anything else. And they really form when you take your eyes off of seeking God and serving him. So these first 10 verses talk about, well, what does, a, uh, what does the person who is content, what does their life really look like? What are some of their, their daily disciplines? And verses one through three, we see, we see the psalmist praising God, but not just himself. So verse one is just himself. It is just his personal praise. I am going to praise God. I'm going to do this. His, his praise will be on my lips. My mouth shall speak it continually. And so there's this aspect where you do need to be personally disciplined to, to praise God. How often have I, my wife can probably count on her, uh, both her hands and, and her feet and then pull out our children's toes and such. To, to finish counting, how often we might complain about something small in our day. If you were to tally things up, how many more times a day do you think you complain versus praise God? I think that's a really good litmus test of how you are doing in your contentment. 
Are you, are you praising God more often than you're complaining? Do you make it a personal discipline and habit to intentionally praise God? That's a question to, to think about. Me personally, I haven't been. I've been thinking about it more. <laughs> I've been striving to do so more. And that has helped me in my, my general happiness in life. <laughs> but more, even more than just me personally being happy, it has really helped me as a, as a husband, as a father, be more intentional about my witness to my children. But verse two takes a little bit of a shift. It says, my soul boasts, it brags about the Lord. And who brags without somebody to, to listen to it? No one. When you're bragging about something, you're, you've got somebody that you're talking to. And it says here that the humble hear it and they are glad. See, we kind of get this. We kind of get it weird, uh, I think, in some ways um, when we talk about our own salvation. See, humility is a, a mark of salvation. It is absolutely a fruit of the Spirit, and it testifies that God has done a miraculous work in this human being when human beings are inherently selfish. And some people like to say, ah, well, if, uh, if choosing to express faith in God is, um, is something that you do of your own free choice, then it's a work. And and then salvation is earned, right? And I go, no, no. Salvation is humiliating. Salvation, putting your faith in Christ, is to admit something very fundamental is wrong with you. That there is nothing good about you. That you need abundant help, even living a decent life, let alone a godly, righteous one. So that's why the humble are glad when they hear it. Is because they they hear somebody else boasting, bragging about God, and they go, "Yes, yes, Amen." And then the last verse in the, in this in this little section is, "Magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt Him together." So he goes from personal praise to publicly testifying and and praising God to somebody else to then saying, "Hey, you and me, let's worship God right here, right now, together." Corporately. And so does your life, is your life defined by one of the, uh, by this? Is this something that somebody can say, ah, yes, this is a person who praises God, testifies about the goodness of God, and also gets me to do it too. So when you're doing that, what you are saying is God is so good. God is abundantly just so good, better than anything and everything else. And this is why it's a mark of contentment. If God is not your ultimate satisfaction, you're going to be praising something else. I know for me, it can be so, so easy to start praising a power tool as a woodworker. (laughs) It is so easy to go, ah, yes, this planer I've got is so great. It makes my life so much easier. Or uh, like I just got this uh, new jig for my table saw, a tenoning jig, and it's allowing me to do some great woodworking joints so fast and easy. And it's a marvelous tool that I've got. But here's the thing. That thing is infinitely insignificant compared to the goodness of God. And 
So what should the emphasis of my daily praise be? Should it be my tenoning jig? Or should I be praising God more intentionally than I praise how wonderful this new tool of mine is? And there's another litmus test. Verse four, he makes a shift away from just praising God kind of in a general way of adoring God in general to testifying about some specific things that God has done for him in his life and still using some general language. But I want you to think as I go through this, what are some very specific examples? Because I'm sure all of us here have some very specific examples of hardships in our life that where we have seen the Lord deliver. And David, the one who wrote this psalm, it's a great example of somebody who has been through many, 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 many hardships that are written about in like four books, of six books of the Bible and mentioned many different places. David knows what he's talking about when he talks about hardship and how the Lord has, has helped him. It says here, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all of my fears. And then skipping a verse, verse six, this is more testimony. This poor man cried out and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. See, David was intentional about his seeking of God. If you are not intentional about your seeking of God, then you're going to find yourself doing something, seeking something else. Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah kind of puts it into some different language. And I always forget the exact reference for, for this, but he talks about the, that the human idol or that the human heart does nothing other than produce idols. And so if you think that you can just have passively a relationship with God, you are a fool. Your relationship with God is not something passive. Another spot in Jeremiah He says, uh, uh, God says, speaking through the prophet, when you seek me with all of your heart, then I will let you find me. I don't know how many times you've done this. Set of keys. Goodness gracious, where are my keys? Dang it, I can't find them anywhere. My keys are just missing. Oh, here they are. When you get that frantic about searching for something, that is wholehearted. Especially if you've like, I don't know if you... You've got a bunch of kids and so you're already running late and you're trying to get them ready to get out the door with you and then you can't find the keys. That kind of wholehearted devotion to finding your keys, that is what it means to seek God. So there's nothing passive about this. David is so intentional about seeking the the Lord and then guess what? The Lord answers him. The Lord hears him and saves him and delivers him out of all of his fears. And again, here's some nuanced detail. It doesn't say that he prevented David from ever experiencing anything troublesome or fearsome. It says that he delivered delivered him out of those fears. That means David was in something horrendous. And in the midst of that, he sought God with everything that he is. He didn't panic seeking a solution to his problems. Seeking about how he could make a new key real quick that that one might hotwire his car for him. No, he laid everything else aside and sought God with the type of fervency somebody in a panic might do something else. 
what kind of devotion must you have to be saying to yourself, you know what I really need? It's not my keys. It's Jesus. Now, I'm not going to leave those sitting there on the ground or I'm going to lose them and we're not going to get home tonight. But um, it's this, this is such a thing to realize because we all, it's so easy to think that God is just missing in the midst of our problems and that if we're going to have anything, if we're going to get out of our problems because God has abandoned us to get into that panic mode. Nowhere in scripture does it promise that God is just going to give us a trouble-free life. Jesus promised the exact opposite. (laughs) He said, if they give me problems, if people persecute me, surely they're going to do the same to you. This world is full of sin and thus it is full of everything being wrong with it. There is nothing just inherently untouched by wickedness in this world now. And that's why God is so desirous for us to seek him because he is the the only thing that is good. When Jesus is uh, teaching at one point in time, uh, some Pharisees come up to him and say, good teacher, and he shuts them up right then and says, why do you call me good? And and they knew what he was asking in that point because Jewish, law is very, very vehement that the only thing that is good is God. The only thing. And here is, and here is Jesus saying, are, are you sure you're ready to say that? That I am God? Look, there might be many, many decent solutions to problems and fears that you face. But there is only one good option for you. And that is to wholeheartedly seek God instead of something else. But then verses five and seven kind of separate four and six, obviously. They're the, the following verses. We're going to use some math logic here for our sakes. You know, it's, it's funny how sometimes that can be helpful. There is a bit of testimony followed by a bit of wisdom. And it says, those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. And then the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. These are radical statements. First of all, those who look to him will have radiant faces. What is that all about? Well, this ought to harken back to um, our thinking about Moses, who decided to go and up and be with God up on the mountain and came back with this radiant face that people were like, you need to cover that for our own sake because they were uh, afraid of the glory of God essentially frying them out of existence. Look, when you put all of your trust, all of your satisfaction in God's provision and in ultimately just simply in him himself, you will never be ashamed because God will He will be with you. And that is enough. You might face some horrible persecution and uh, and you might face uh, being shunned by people. People might look at you and go, 
those radical Christians who live such a weird lifestyle, who have such a moral high ground and they're a bit snooty and they might reject you out of public society. Very well might happen. Thankfully, we don't live in a culture that's quite that severe, but there are Christians who do. We're quite blessed in that regard. But I think all of us would attest that it's becoming a little bit more shameful in the world's perspective to be a Christian. But here's the thing. If you truly have centered your life and your focus to be satisfied on God and God alone, then who cares? Who cares if you're rejected because of your standards? They might, but you will find that you have something much, much better. And that is the fear, or that is the angel of the Lord encamping around you. Now, without going into an in-depth survey of the angel of the Lord throughout the Old Testament, which would be a marvelous study that you should do and maybe a fantastic sermon series to be considered. Ben, Jordan. <laughs> um, because the, the angel of the Lord is Jesus manifested in physical form in some way, shape or form on earth before he came as a baby. And the promise here is that Jesus will encamp around you. To give a little bit of a, uh, some highlights of what the angel of the Lord did in the Old Testament. This was the commander of God's army that met with Joshua before the battle of Jericho and gave Joshua the battle plan that said, you're going to do nothing. I'm going to bring the walls down and then you're going to do something. Or when the Babylonians came to the Southern kingdom and sent their messenger ahead of, ahead of the army and saying, we're going to destroy you because your God is powerless before us. Hezekiah then went into the temple to pray and said, look, look at what they're saying. And the angel of the Lord in a single night wiped out the entirety of that army and sent them packing. This angel of the Lord is promised to encamp around you if you fear him. In English, the word fear is kind of a, a strange thing. We think about cowering. Well, it can mean that in Hebrew, but it means so much more. In Hebrew, what you fear is what you worship. And if you think about it in our own context, I think you'd find that to be true as well. Whatever you are afraid of losing or having happen to you, you devote all of your mental energy and your physical effort to, either to prevent it or to, to keep it from coming true or something along those lines, but you, you worship it. Well, what a promise. You will have the infinitely powerful angel of the Lord encamp around you should you choose to fear him. So taste and see. Test this. There are very few things in scripture where we are invited to test God. And most of it is said, even by Jesus' own words, when the devil is trying to tempt him, do not, uh, it's not for us to test God. But then we have a passage like this and a few other spots where we are actively encouraged to test God. Test or taste and see that the Lord is good. In other words, put him to the test and see if this doesn't happen to you in your life. This is so incredible. 
Now, but you have to you have to realize that you can't just do this and and set up like ah well I I am the teacher and God is going to take my test and I have God needs to act this way within this per, set of parameters to get an A plus and pass my test. No, whatever your agenda is, you need to lay that aside and be ready to experience God however he manifests himself to you. However, when you fully devote yourself, like when you are searching for those keys, you need to devote yourself in that kind of sense to this test of saying, all right, God, I'm going to throw myself at you. If you are God, you must do something that that saves me from this circumstance because I am powerless. This is the kind of test that you are putting God to because you're not putting God to the test. You are putting yourself to it. Are you truly ready to surrender your agenda? What your perception about how God must act and do? Because if you're not, then you're not, uh, then he's not God. You are, to be very blunt. And that's where I was. When I was constantly saying to God, like, ah, this thing didn't work out my, the way I wanted it to. The computer is not working the way I think it ought to be working, which is a very constant struggle for me, who is an audiovisual technician. Do you want to see me get really frustrated? Watch me when, the, when we're having a bunch of gremlins in the sound booth on a Sunday. I, I, could, I could be ready to kick the computer out the window. Actually, our computer is now pretty darn good. But uh, every now and then, there's some weird little glitches in the system that drive me up a wall. And I have my thoughts about how it's supposed to work. Guess what? God is the one who gets to be that in our lives. When we are, when we are not doing the things that we ought to be doing according to the way he has said, he is the one who gets to be upset with us. He is the creator. We don't get to be upset with him. When he doesn't operate in the way that we think he should. See, we have a culture in America that is so fundamentally set up about self-praise and self-exaltation and um, you achieving something. When somebody asks, like, how are you? Um, It's very common for us to say, oh, my week was great because I accomplished this thing. I, I got a promotion at work. I, I, I did so well. And in fact, they're thinking about giving me a raise on top of this promotion too. And Oh, and so how was your week? And we, we kind of interact with people in a, in a similar sort of manner to where not only do we get to brag about ourselves, but we get to then maybe, maybe by our own self-bragging, our own self-exaltation, make somebody else appear just a little bit lower in their own eyes. And we do this to seemingly get what we need, what we feel that we need. And it says here that the lions suffer want and hunger. What are you hunting? Are you, are you after that next promotion in order for you to even feel good about yourself? For you to have like an, a, a, a sense of being exalted above other people or, or wherever it might be. It, Insert blank. But it is not so with Christian, with Christianity, with our relationship to Jesus. It is our acceptance, our approval 
our greatness is not measured in achievement or what we do, what we get, what we have, etc. Our acceptance is found in what the work that Jesus has done. And that is it. And so instead of being a human doing, you get to be a human being for once. That's the dignity that Christianity restores us human beings to. We get to be free of being human doings. But again, the key throughout all these last three verses has been all about those who fear him will have no lack. Or um, those who seek the Lord will lack no good thing. Again, this is not prosperity gospel sort of stuff here. This is not, ah, yes, have a relationship with God and you will have all the things that you need. We already talked about this. No, just because you come to faith in God doesn't mean that you might not have medical bills that you don't know how you're going to pay. You might experience those sort of things, but the key here is that it says, lacks no good thing. God knows what's good for you, not you. He knows what's good for you far better than you could ever hope to. And what might be good for you is to be in a position where, you know why you don't know where that money is going to come from to pay that medical bill. God cares infinitely more about your holiness than he does with your material happiness. So it's not that you will not, that you will have abundance in everything. It is that you will lack nothing that pertains to your holiness. God will abundantly provide for you, whether that be food on the table for your kids so that you can be a father and a husband who looks after his family, patience for you mothers who have to get deal with another screaming child or whatever it might be, you will lack no good thing should you, in the midst of all things, be satisfied in God alone. But what is the fear of the Lord? This has been the key that has been talked about, like I said, throughout these last, last things. What, what, is, what is it? What is the fear of the Lord? What we heard earlier is a little bit about um, worshiping and, and, um, and having absolute respect for God. But what does that look like? What are, what are some, a way that I can be like, yes, this is what the fear of the Lord is. Paul says, children, come listen. I'll teach you. Desire to have a good long life to where you can see good become real. Keep your tongue from evil. Your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. We, you know, you hear these sort of things often. It's don't do bad things. Do good things. Don't lie. Try and try and live a a, a quiet, dignified life. And yes, do these things. But these things are. Uh, we are setting a much, 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 much higher bar than what the world does for these things. You know, speak, keeping your tongue from evil is promoting what's good actively. So, so it's not just not saying evil things. It is truly trying to get people to understand what is true and good and holy. Keep your lips from speaking deceit. So again, this is not just simply lying, but it is speaking truth. The Bible doesn't tell you anywhere just to shut up and never say anything. In fact, it tells you to proclaim 
boldly. Things concerning the gospel, things concerning God, things concerning righteousness. So it's not just don't lie, it is actively proclaim the truth and what is holy and righteous and good. Turn away from evil and do good. Well, we live in a culture that likes to say what is good is evil and what's evil is good. And to live a life that is centered on doing good takes a lot of courage. I mean, there are some things that are just kind of universally agreed upon, like murder is bad. So yeah, it's, it's not so bold and courageous to not go around murdering. Unless you're talking about abortion. There, you, can, you can think of all these sort of little things where like we agree with the non-Christian secular society up to a certain point. We're like, no, that is not good. That is evil. You are called to turn away from evil and do good. You are called to repent. So whatever you think is the standard of goodness that you've been doing in your life, you are called to go, yeah, but what's holding me back from up here? Mm, this sin is what is that, is that roadblock. Okay, well, let's deal with that. Okay, well, now I've gotten a little bit higher. I've achieved another standard of righteousness. Well, but what is the area of sin and declaring it to be sin boldly and turning to God and go, God, I need the strength to go even further. That's what it means to turn away from evil and do good and seek peace and pursue it. This is not just merely being a peacekeeper. This is being a peacemaker. Being intentionally active in creating peace. That is no simple task. So this is what the fear of the Lord looks like. And we really could go on a much longer dialogue about this, but for time's sake, and so that some of us can get children home to bed, I should probably move on um, because there is the next section here that is so sweet. Here's the high standard to which you are called. Here are the incredible blessings that are promised to such a one. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears hear their cry. See, okay. The Lord's presence is promised to you. The Lord will hear you. The Lord will deliver you. The Lord will console you. These are incredible and magnificent promises. You will have the full attentiveness of God upon you in your life. And he is promised to then vindicate you as well. When things are going horrible for you and you've been persecuted overall, what you can trust in is that the Lord will be against such evil. And you will be proven to have been living correctly. And make no mistake, I said it earlier, I will say it again. This is worth emphasizing. When you live a life that is righteously lived and fully content within that, so content that you're not willing to ever compromise on that righteousness, people will hate you. They will hate you. You will stand apart from your family and be ostracized because they will not accept you. It has happened to me. It's happened to me with my own mother and my own father. But I am promised something that is what keeps me from breaking down in tears. That my heavenly father is fully attentive to my cry. 
His presence is with me. I am promised to be delivered. And he says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. He will console me. But then I have to ask myself, do I really qualify for these blessings? Do I really live such a morally high standard? In fact, the standard is even beyond just being merely high. The standard is moral perfection. I don't qualify. I mean, these things sound easy, right? I mean, all religions and everywhere in culture has legislated morality to a certain extent. But if it was easy, then they wouldn't have to do it. (laughs) And when every religion and when every culture throughout history and all uh, in, in every place in the world actually can agree on something, we ought to maybe give it a little bit of credence. We ought to maybe think that maybe this isn't so easy. Maybe this isn't just a, a, a universally human thing to do. They wouldn't have legislated or written into religious code if it was, if it was something that humans just uh, we inherently did. We don't. That's the problem. If anything, throughout history, history suggests that this is impossible, but Jesus' death proves it. Perfect human being, never sinned once. Never could be, no one could ever look at him and truly say that this man is a sinner. In fact, the only way that they could get him condemned to die was to try and get people to create false testimony to him during his trial, about him during his trial. And they didn't like him, so they called him a blasphemer. But his own works declared that he was not lying, that he was indeed exactly who he said he was, and they knew it. There was plenty of Pharisees of equal standing or higher than the ones who put him on trial who came to faith. We see written throughout scripture at different points that Uh, what he said divided not only just the hearers in general, the average person, but it divided the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and yet he was murdered. There's something that is so sweet to us that to anyone who, whenever they're in the midst of something troubling and, and really fearsome, is the knowledge that we have a God who suffered. Now, that is a very unique thing amongst religions of the world. Let me tell you, as somebody who has studied them, every other religion has a God who is above suffering. We have a God who entered into suffering for our sake. He has suffered abandonment, persecution, and he was merely used at times for his status. The feeding of the 5,000 miracle. Well, we look at it and go, ah, yes, God is so powerful. He can just make food appear out of nowhere. He can multiply this bread and this fish. And that's all we talk about in the story, but it ends with a couple of lines, at least in the John story, the telling of it, where uh, the zealots in the group, the people that were probably made up the vast majority of this group, they wanted to take and make him king. See, the zealots, they were the people who thought that uh, the Messiah was going to come right then and right there, which they were correct about, to overthrow Rome and reestablish Israel as this glorious nation and elevate it to 
this uh, to being the pinnacle of culture in the world, which they were wrong about. That was not what Jesus was going to do at that moment. It's what he will do someday, but not at this moment. And Jesus, sensing that this was their intent, dismissed himself and left. Well, the same group of people then noticed that somehow Jesus got to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. How they knew about that before text messages and emails, I don't understand. Um, but, you know, God's word is inspired and it speaks the truth. So somehow this very same group of people figured out that he was on the other side of the sea and got over there, lickety split. Again, without cars, I don't understand. Um, and they found him uh, and they came to him and were essentially getting him to try and... Uh, wanting him to do another miracle. And he told them off. He said, you know what? You, all you want from me is a miracle. You want to know who I really am? Eat my flesh, drink my blood. And they knew that he was saying something really radical. Not only is it kind of just radical at face value, but again, it was another very clear presentation of himself as being God, according to Jewish culture. And people left in droves. They didn't want Jesus for for himself. They wanted Jesus for the idea of him. And let me ask you a question. And I have to ask myself this question too. Do you really want God? Do you really love God? Or are you merely in love with the idea of what you want him to be? Because real contentedness loves God for exactly who he says he is. And let me tell you, the God who, who, the actual God for who he is is much better than the God that you think you want. One of the things that's also really interesting about this shift now coming from verses 18 and um, 15 through 18, now coming into 19 and 20, a shift in language. Up until this point, it's all been talking about they, them, there, as far as these blessings go these rewards for righteous living. And it shifts now to singular words, him and his. Who qualifies? Jesus does. Jesus qualifies. Jesus qualifies for all these blessings. And that's why the Psalm here shifts. In fact, it's verse 20 is what makes this a messianic Psalm. This is, and we probably wouldn't recognize this as being messianic in nature unless you were born in Israel, raised with Jewish upbringing, understanding of the, the Passover feast, nor if it wasn't written in the book of Matthew saying that um, it was a, when Jesus died on the cross and not a single one of his bones were break, broken in his legs to, you know, to speed up the process, you know, that that didn't occur was uh, referencing this verse, that it was a messianic fulfillment of the Passover. All these all these sort of things he qualifies for. And he endured the great persecution and abandonment and, and being used by people so that he could die a redeeming death, but also so that he could rightly be the judge of the world. And that's what these last few verses look at now is his judgment of wickedness and of sin and the promise to us of redemption so that we might indeed indeed qualify for the blessings, the rewards of living a life that is utterly contented upon God alone. 
Now, I do want to make a little mention of something to reassure somebody here who maybe is thinking, goodness gracious, I have not been living a contented life. Have I been abandoned by God for not living a contented life? No, you have not. You have not lost your salvation. I promise you that. But maybe you've, la- you've missed out on some of the blessings of the knowledge of his presence, assurance of, um, of his consolation, of his deliverance. Maybe you've, you've missed out on receiving wisdom from him about the route out of what you are fearful of. But you have not lost him. But I encourage you, I exhort you. Really in- examine your life. See if indeed you are content in God and God alone. Or are you like one of the young lions who is constantly hungry, constantly having to search for the next meal, to hunt it down, to get it for a moment, to feel satisfied for just a brief moment, to then go and get the next meal? Are you content in God alone? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would continue to grow me and continue to grow all of us and awareness of the things that would draw us away from you. To draw us into being like one of the young lions, constantly seeking to consume and, uh, and to find satisfaction in something other than yourself. Teach us what it means to truly be in love with Jesus. Because he is the only one who qualifies for these blessings that are laid out. And because of that fact, he is the only one who can give us the blessings. Help us to truly find our utter satisfaction in him alone and the strength necessary to live a life of radical contentedness or the world would shun us for. In Jesus' name, amen.